Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I'd like to welcome everyone today to uh, Church Online. I uh, hope everything is going well with you uh, today. Uh, hey, we are in our This Is Us series. And uh, today I want to highlight just actually two things. Uh, the first thing is that Jesus did life around a table. And then the second thing is that Jesus, as he did life around a table, generated this new social reality. And doing life around the table and this generation of a new social reality really are the building blocks of, of the church. And so I want to do my very best to talk about these two things. Uh, before I do that, let's go to our passage here today. It's found in Luke chapter 14. And I'm going to read just a few verses uh, with you. Uh, verse 12. Jesus uh, is having a conversation with a man, and he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Verse 14, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 15, Jesus then continues, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, and he tells us this parable, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, which is a good thing. Therefore, I cannot come. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. Verse 23, and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Verse 24, as we close, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of those men shall taste or be a part of this messianic feast. So I'm going to talk to you about how Jesus emphasizes doing life around the table and how this parable shows us how God and the kingdom of God uh, is about generating an upside-down vision of our world. A couple years ago, I read an article by David Brooks. And uh, in this article, he actually titled it The Golden Age of Bailing. And this is what he said in his words. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He goes, it's clear we're living in a golden age of bailing. All across America, people are deciding on Monday that it would be really fantastic to grab a drink with, let's say, X on Thursday. We're talking about Diet Pepsi. But then when Thursday actually rolls around, they realize it would actually be more fantastic. 
fantastic to go home, to flop on the bed, and to watch videos. So, and he kind of just shares this. So they send an email, and it goes something like this. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to flake on drinks tonight. I'm overwhelmed. My grandfather just got bubonic plague. And then he continues. Bailing is one of the defining acts of the current moment because it stands at the nexus of so many larger trends. And this is what he says. We have the ambiguity of modern social relationships, right? We're trying to figure out how to navigate a very difficult uh, social network, which is defined by technology. We have, in his words, the fraying of commitments, not to mention the decline of civilization, the collapse of morality, and he gets a little hyperbolic, and the ruination of all that we hold dear. This is kind of similar to what Jesus is talking about in this parable. Jesus offers a warning in uh, the parable that we just read in Luke chapter 14. The original guest list, if you remember, is made up of people who made excuses for not attending. Remember, one said, hey, the servant comes to him, and his response to this uh, royal feast that he's invited to is, hey, man, I, I bought a I bought a field. I can't make it tonight. Uh, another person said, I have, um, I bought five oxen, right? And so I got to take care of them so I can't come over uh, tonight. Another said, man, I've married a wife again. Good thing. And then that is his excuse for not attending this party. If you know anything about the ancient Near East or the world of antiquity, uh, these excuses would have been seen as a serious violation of, of sociality. These guests were invited to this, this messianic feast, and this is what Jesus is telling us, and they've come up with excuses for not attending or participating. Uh, hospitality and hosting in the ancient Near East was at the top of the virtues in that world. The village life, in other words, was arranged around the table in hospitality. And to reject being a part of a feast like this would have been seen as astonishing. But for many of us in the modern Western world, this social dimension of the kingdom of God is hard for us to understand, right? The average American family spends the same amount of money on fast food than on groceries, right? 17% uh, eat regular meals together. In fact, 60 years ago, uh, meals or dinner time were uh, an hour and a half long. Now they are 12 minutes. So we don't, we don't know how to table, right? We've, we've been trained, right? We've imbibed our cultural uh, narrative that we're supposed to go and, and this kind of this fast-paced way of life and hyper-individualism, which I'll talk uh, here pretty soon, has affected our, our relationships, our social networks. But what we come to find in the Bible is that the kingdom of God is deeply social. There are 50 references in the Gospel of Luke uh, related to food and eating, uh, which highlights this social reality, right? Uh, Tim Chester, in his book, Eating and Tabling with Jesus, highlights the absolute centrality of the table in the biblical world. First, uh, people were anointed around a table, we also see that Jesus utilized the table to feed uh, the crowds. When you see in Mark chapter 6 and, and John chapter 6, Jesus multiplying fish and bread to feed the crowds, we need to see that as a tabling story. Uh, some of the disciples were uh, called at um, a meal around a table. The prodigal son, it's a beautiful story about restoration and healing, uh, is focused, or the climax of the story is focused around coming to a table. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, everybody hated him, right, is transformed 
uh, by having lunch and eating some uh, Chick-fil-A at a meal with Jesus. Prodigal son is restored again, as I mentioned, around the table. Jesus inaugurates and explains the kingdom of uh, around the table to his disciples. In fact, the very first thing that Jesus does after rising from the dead is to ask for bread and fish. And then he eats with his disciples around the table. And then he announces shalom or peace over them. Uh, I love this in one of the last post-resurrection stories that we have of Jesus uh, as he talks with his disciples is that he invites the disciples to eat breakfast with him. And what does he do? He restores them, gives them their job back, and heals them and empowers them to go throughout the world announcing the good news of Jesus. So the kingdom of God is deeply social. In fact, the kingdom of God, we could even say the church and healing and life happen and is structured around being together around a table. Paul even says that uh, we not only, he says, we not only share the gospel, but our very lives. In other words, the kingdom of God for Paul wasn't just something that they went around and announced and proclaimed, and it was. It was also a lifestyle bound up with other people. The word that he uses, um, and he uses several different words for the church, but one of the primary way, words that he uses to describe the church's experience with each other was koinonia. Koinonia simply means in the Greek, um, and I'm sure if you've been in church long enough, you've heard this, it means fellowship. It's kind of a hard word to describe. Uh, one scholar suggests, because it's a very difficult word to like figure out, one scholar suggests that we need to use images, and this is what he says. We need to see koinonia, or this fellowship, as what happens when a dear friend surprises you by dropping by, or by a long squeeze of a hand by a hospital bed, uh, or the contentment and gratitude that people experience as they accompany uh, church or prayer services as they worship God. In fact, Paul, at the end of most of his letters, uh, he announces or he shares um, about his companions that he's doing life with. And all of these companions come from different walks of life. Uh, some have uh, Greek names, some have Jewish names, uh, some have radically different backgrounds. And what Paul does by sharing kind of a little bit biography on his friends that travel with him throughout the ancient world is that he's stitching together all these different people into this beautiful tapestry, a tapestry we call the church. The point is, is that Paul, as he used koinonia and as he talked about his lifestyle being bound up with other people, Paul is making a statement that he was sustained, the great Paul, was sustained and nourished by his relationship to the church, by being a member of the church. In fact, uh, we've said this many times before in church, community, communion, companion come from the same Latin word, which means together, two Latin words, which means being together and breaking bread. So the kingdom of God, and I think this is one of the reasons why we find this passage maybe a little eccentric, is because the kingdom of God is deeply, deeply social. Reasons we struggle with belonging, and I think the reasons maybe even our tabling has been affected uh, in our own current situation uh, is uh, the result of several different things. And I just want to highlight just these uh, few different things, and then I want to share one other point, and then we'll pray. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with um, doing life together with family, with churches, with other people is because of hurry sickness. Uh, we're, we're called uh, in many ways to do life together, but people are just rushing through life. 
And uh, because they're rushing through life, it is very difficult to spend uh, real quality time with each other. In fact, uh, Corey Timboon said that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I think because of our distracted age, and because we have really good things that we have to do, right? We got to take care of our family, and some of us are uh, dropping kids off at school. Obviously, we're not right now, um, but prior to COVID nineteen, man, our life has been this distracted um, age, and it's affected our relationships. Uh, the second thing, and I think this is really important for us to understand, and the reason why we've struggled again prior to COVID-19 when it comes to being together is hyper-individualism. Uh, we've been living in this great uh, selfing cultural project. Uh, in other words, the individual is seen as a self-actualizer. And as an individual, um, the individual has been elevated to such a place that they are more important than anything outside of itself. Uh, so, for example, um, we use, uh, as a result of this great selfing cultural project, uh, we use marriages and churches as self-fulfillment projects, right? What does that mean? Well, it's just like, okay, we come to church or we, we kind of come into marriage as how can that church or how can my spouse benefit me rather than how I can serve and love them, Right? So we got people that come to, to church and they love the people, right? And they love hopefully the preaching and they love uh, the worship and they really like the excitement and the dynamic of maybe a church service. Uh, but what happens when maybe they start to not like some of the preaching or not like some of the worship songs or maybe some of the dynamics in the church? Well, uh, for many people, because we just think of church as somehow benefiting me and we begin to use people, and we begin to use messages, and we begin to use uh, church life uh, for our own fulfillment and to fulfill our own dreams, we uh, decide to go or move on to um, another church. Uh, this is what many people call is the, the great selfing of our cultural uh, moment, and is the result of this hyper-individualism that drives um, everything that we do. Another reason why we struggle with um, belonging, and many of you might experience this, is that we just, we, we know what intuitively what belonging implies. It means that we have to be vulnerable, right? Inevitably, if you're going to belong and be a member in a family, in a marriage, in a church, your worst self is going to come out, right? And so uh, many people uh, fear uh, belonging because they fear vulnerability because vulnerability implies that you're going to allow other people to not just get to know you, but you're going to allow other people to see you for maybe who you really are. And you're not sure, maybe because of past experiences, you're not sure if that's a good thing because you've done that before, you've been rejected. I know maybe some of you watching today, maybe that's been your experience. Uh, for others, and one of the big things that I hear about why people don't want to belong to a church, they want to serve Jesus but not belong, is because they've been disillusioned. Uh, we know there are bad churches out there. Uh, we know there are bad marriages out there. We know that there are bad fathers out there. We know there are bad politics out there. And one of the reasons why people choose not to belong um, or participate in churches or marriages or family or even politics is because they've been disillusioned by scandal. They've been disillusioned by people who do church bad or do marriages bad or do fathering or parenting 
bad. And this is a major reason why people struggle with unbelonging. In fact, Robert Putman uh, states in his book, Bowling Alone, we are a nation of believers. Please hear me today. We are a nation of believers, but we are no longer a nation of belongers. We do not know how to belong because of the aforementioned things that I mentioned. But the thing that we see in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God is deeply social, that Jesus does life around the table. In fact, our current social reality, we'll call it liquid relationships, right? Uh, we're kind of just kind of not fully committed to relationships, is foreign to how the Bible sees human life. Uh, flourishing, according to the Bible, is not a self-help quest. It's a group project. From the very beginning of the biblical story in Genesis, it is clear, and this is what God says over Adam by himself, it is not good that humans live alone. Can I get an amen at home to that, right? Social isolation, according to God, is not good for the soul. In fact, God announces this over Adam, who had everything. He had uh, this lush garden. He had creation, which is his heaven and earth construct that was given to him. He had God, his very presence. There was no sin. There was no evil. Yet he was by himself. He had all these animals. It's great. But even God said it is not good for Adam to be alone. Proverbs, which defines foolishness. And foolishness, according to Proverbs, is seeing the world or seeing up as down and down as up and triangles as squares. In other words, foolishness is not seeing the world according to how God sees it. And what Proverbs tells us is that it's foolish to willingly isolate yourself from other people. Now, of course, there are times like in the day and age that we're living, that we have to quarantine ourselves. Obviously, there are people that are healthy and they can't fully commit to being a part of large groups. That's certainly not what we're uh, talking about today. What we're talking about is that God has created us in his image, male and female, which is to say we are social creatures. Why are we social creatures? Because God is social. God's not a loner in the cosmos just kind of hanging out with himself and decided to bam, one day I'm going to make people and I'll just maybe hang out with them, but I'm just going to think about thinking most of the time and I'll just kind of let them do their own thing. God is not like that. God is social, has always been social. When it comes to Jesus, uh, he sent his disciples out, not one by one, but two by two. He doesn't send them out to face the world alone. In fact, the only time we see the disciples alone in the Gospels is when Judas betrays Jesus and Peter denies him. I think that makes you want to go, hmm, about that story. Man, there's something about Jesus sending out the disciples two by two. And there's something about how Judas betrayed Jesus and Peter denied Jesus as a result of being maybe isolated from the, from the group. The Bible highlights what sociologists call thick groups. We are designed, in other words, to live our life enmeshed with each other. It's not that we simply belong together. It's that we belong to something bigger um, than ourselves. The Bible names this, we belong together because we are heirs of creation. This is why we're calling this sermon series, This Is Us, not This Is Me. And I want you to hear me. This is us, not this is me. This is our sermon series. We belong together. 
life and shalom and peace and healing and restoration all are located in our life together as we build for the kingdom of Jesus in this world. So first, Jesus did life around a table. Jesus was not a loner. Yes, he went on retreats. And yes, he went into the desert. And yes, he prayed alone. And yes, Jesus did things that we could never do for ourselves. But the primary way of Jesus' relationship and ministry with us was done around a table. Second, what we find in this parable is that Jesus is inaugurating a new social reality. Jesus draws a picture of the kingdom of God around throwing a party. Jesus loved to throw parties. In fact, this parable is showing us uh, a messianic party. Uh, it's allusion to Isaiah chapter 25 when we have uh, the end of the age or the climax of human history where God inaugurates his kingdom and makes all things new, wipes away every tear, and destroys death itself. This is what Jesus is alluding to in Luke chapter 14. Here we have a parable about the inauguration of this messianic party. The first part of the parable, if you, if you could recollect, is about, a par- is about a guest who asks Jesus about the rules of tabling. Jesus then responds to this guest, and this is what he, essentially what he says. Uh, you shouldn't just simply um, surround your table, again, this is Jesus talking to this, this guest, with people like you. In fact, Robert Putman calls it lifestyle enclaves. In the modern Western world, we, we know sociality around doing life together with people who are exactly like, like us. So Republicans, in other words, do life with Republicans and Democrats do life with Democrats and vegans with vegans and cat people with cat people, dog people with dog people, whatever. This, this is how we do social um, uh, tabling. Jesus uh, responds to that and says this, hey, no, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you just to do things with people that are like you. I mean, anybody can do that. Jesus said, this is what the Messianic party is all about. This is what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. You should, in the words of Jesus, go out into the streets and bring in the outcast. In fact, Jesus says that this royal feast is about serving and bringing those who are on the streets into this party. The host of the party, as we hear as the story kind of goes on, then instructs the servants to go into the streets, as Jesus tells us, in order to bring all the people to the party. What Luke is doing is, is he is emphasizing the outcast. And I want you to think about this situation here. Remember what I said. Jesus in this story is inaugurating a new social Reality, And I want you to think about how this would be seen in the ancient world. So we have people from all different classes, right? People on the streets and people not on the streets. We have uh, free and slave. We have male and female. Uh, we have in the, in the world of, of purity laws, we have the clean and unclean all mixing up together in this story, right? The host doesn't care about social divisions. The host doesn't care about whether you're clean or unclean according to the Jewish purity codes. Uh, The host doesn't care about whether you're free or slave, male or female, wealthy, poor, whatever. No, the host gives explicit instructions to the servant to go out and bring everybody together. As one scholar says, 
This is a social nightmare in the world of antiquity. Think of it this way. Could you imagine um, a progressive Democrat, uh, maybe a group of progressive Democrats, uh, with Nancy Pelosi, tabling one day with a group of, let's say, uh, neoconservatives and the president of the United States, and actually just kind of not only just tabling and fellowshipping, but uh, maybe high-fiving, we can't high-five right now, but maybe just with six feet apart, um, interacting with each other with grace and love. I mean, I think we'd be shocked if we saw something like that. And this is not to condemn Democrats or Republicans. I just think if we saw something like that, it would, it would astonish everyone in our country. Or we can imagine it like this. Again, this, this mixing up of this social reality that we see in this parable. We can imagine it like a beggar one day knocking on somebody's um, house. And let's just say this house is filled with really wealthy people. And let's say the owner of this home opens the door from this guy and he sees this guy who's been living on the streets. He doesn't even know his name. And he asks this wealthy owner, hey, can I have some food? I'm starving, right? And let's just imagine that this owner says, you know what, I'm, not, I'm just not going to give you food. I want you to, we're having dinner right now. I want you to come back. And he goes back in this big house and uh, he sits down at the table with all these wealthy people and all their families and they enjoy dinner that night. That kind of gives you a picture of what we see happening, the mixing up of this parable and what Jesus is doing. The table, in other words, is a miniature map, and I said this last week, is a miniature map of what the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Look, looks like. The rules of tabling for Jesus, please hear me uh, this morning or this afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. The rules of tabling for Jesus in the kingdom is that all are welcomed into the kingdom of God. The disabled, the wealthy, the crippled, the blind, the free, the slave, the poor, male, female, lame, the disadvantaged, all. All are welcomed in the kingdom of God. In other words, there's not one person, please hear me, and this is why we are a Jesus for the people church. There's not one person in this world that lies outside the range of God's love. We say this often, but God loves people. God does not make distinctions between who's in and who's not based on whether they have money based on their class, based on their family tree, based on the color of their skin, based on whether they're moral exemplars or not. The kingdom of God is available to those who decide to come under King Jesus. In fact, I heard it said, and I think this is really important for us uh, today to hear this as a church. Please hear me. I think this is really important. A church, someone said, who does not accept and serve those who are disabled are in fact a disabled church. If we choose not to love our city, our neighbor, because maybe we have an issue with, I don't know, their class. We have an issue, maybe we don't like them, whatever. Then not only are we going against um, the grain of the kingdom of God, we are losing and, and forfeiting the power of God that wants to work through us as a people. So what is this uh, Jesus parable about the kingdom of God about, let me say it again, it's about generating a brand new social reality. Remember, I said this last week, according to the words of one author, in all societies, eating was a primary way of initiating. 
Once the anthropologist finds out where, when, and with whom the food is eaten, everything else can be inferred about the relation among the society's members. To know what, where, how, when, and with whom people eat is to know the character of their society. We generally, in other words, do life together as we talked about it. But the church is different. Please hear me today. The church is different. I'll say it again. The church is different. The worldview of the church in light of where our culture is, is radically upside down. We do life not just with people that we like. We do life with not just cat people, Oakland Raider fans, whatever, based on our preferences. We do life with all sorts of people who have made a decision to come under King Jesus. Now, let me just say this really quick. What I'm not advocating for is like this radical egalitarianism where we only celebrate our differences and we tolerate each other and we never change. No, what I'm talking about is that the kingdom of God is for all people and for all people who come under King Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 23 that it's God who prepares the table before us and it's at the table that we change. It's at the table that we're transformed. It's at the table that God does a fresh work in our life. Uh, as I close here, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it's kind of an interesting passage about the, the existence of the church. So the question is, and what Paul answers in Ephesians 3.10, is what is the purpose of the church? And this is what he writes in verse 10. He goes, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities even in the heavenly places. First, what Paul says, and he's describing why we exist right now in this world. He first speaks of the church, not individuals. He says it's through the church, not just through Paul, not just through Peter, not just through the disciples, but it's through the church that the powers are demonstrated or given the wisdom of God. And second, the question that I've asked and I've always thought about related to this passage is, okay, so, so Paul, if it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is demonstrated to the powers, not just through individuals. Second, how does this happen? Uh, I used to think that, okay, maybe it's by what we say or by what, by what we do, and it certainly is, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul is saying is that it's not by what the church says. It's not even by what the church does but it's by what the church is that demonstrates the wisdom of God to the powers, right? Thank God we're not all the same. Thank God the church is not just made up of musicians, right? And I love musicians, but we would all be a basket case if it was all musicians, and musicians are incredible. Thank God it's not all preachers, because we would all be in trouble if it was just preachers like me. Thank God it's not just all flutists or harpists or I'm trying to think of examples of just things. Thank God we're not a monochromatic people. We're not just one shade. Um, the manifold wisdom of God is not just one color, right? It's manifold. It's, it's, it, there's a plurality in God. And what Paul is saying is that it's through, it's through the differences. It's through what Jesus is doing around a table it's through how the kingdom of God is now being made available to all people from all kinds of different walks of life who now are coming under King Jesus and being healed and transformed by him. It's through that reality we demonstrate to the powers that their time 
is up. In fact, the powers, you know what they want to do as we close here? They want to make the world into their own image. So they want everyone to be Republicans or they want everyone to be flexitarians or they want everyone to be progressives or they want everyone to be this, this, and this, right? But the Jesus table breaks the power of tribalism. When we table and we come under Jesus, we will, I promise you, we will stop tribaling. Tabling, according to the rules of Jesus, breaks the power of tribaling in our life. So as I close here, here is my challenge. First, this week, let's celebrate that we are welcomed in the kingdom of God. And how do we celebrate, right? Uh, Ephesians 3.11 says this, that we can be bold and confident because the kingdom of God is available to us. So we celebrate by making a decision, okay, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to be confident this week, not because I have my life together, not because I make every perfect decision, right? Not because in quarantine that I never said like a really, like a bad word in my mind. I'm sure most of you have. I didn't, right? But uh, many of us, the point that I'm trying to make is that many of us, we, uh, we assume uh, that because we have flaws that we can't celebrate that we're welcome. No, no, no. Uh, let's celebrate that we are forgiven. Let's celebrate that King Jesus is in charge. Let's celebrate that we can be bold and confident because we have access uh, to the very presence of Jesus, that we are a part of the family because of the faithful love of Jesus, uh, that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because of the faithful love of Jesus. And because of the faithful love of Jesus, we can reject the arrogance of creating social divisions, right? Okay, you're a, a part of the kingdom of God and you're not a part of the kingdom of God because of this, this, and this. Second, as we celebrate um, being welcomed in the kingdom of God, let's continue to prioritize our life together because of the logic that we've been fleshing out here today. Human flourishing is designed to happen. I, I believe this. You can disagree with me. You're probably wrong. But human flourishing happens only around a table. In fact, what we find all the ethical sayings in the Bible about doing certain things they're never cast or rarely cast in the sing singular you. All of them are cast in the plural you. Like if you lived in the South, what do you say? You all, right? So when we have statements, and it's hard to translate in English, but when we have statements such as you should do this, you should rejoice, we need to see that within the plural. You all should rejoice is what the Bible tells us. You all should participate in shalom and righteousness and nourishment and hope and joy. In other words, again, our lives are bound up together as followers of Jesus. This is why we need to learn to commit even when we want to decommit. Uh, this is why we, we need to learn to stay put, especially when we want to leave. This is why we need to make a decision to love even when we don't want to. Why? Well, because we belong with each other, but also because this is how Jesus is with us. I don't know about you, but I've a few times over the last month and a half, I'll say it this way. I, I don't even need to say this. We all have our flaws. I've had my flaws. And I'm so thankful that in spite of my flaws and in spite of being a cowboy fan, Jesus always 
is faithfully committed to me. And I like to say the same thing. Jesus is always faithfully committed to you. He's always loving you. He's always working with you. And when we realize that, that gives us the strength and the power to do the same with others. Finally, my last point is this. Um, the parable, as we read today, is a challenge for us to turn around and to be host in the pattern of Jesus for our city. The challenge, I want to challenge you, is not just to simply celebrate that we belong and not just simply celebrate that we have forgiveness and not just simply be bold and confident that Jesus hears us and that when we spend time with him, there's grace and that's amazing. But the challenge for us is to be host like this in the pattern of Jesus for the sake of our city. We are called to serve those who are outcasts. We are called to serve those who are disadvantaged, the lame, the crippled, those who are in the margins of our world. We are called to love and to serve as we build for the kingdom of Jesus. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. You don't have to, but if you want to, that'd be great. I wanna pray with you as we close. Maybe some of you today, you, uh, you're wrestling with the question of following Jesus. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus but your, your heart's been arrested this morning with, okay, with the thought of, okay, maybe, maybe I want this Jesus thing. If that's you, um, i like, I like for you to just pray with me. I'm going to pray for you, and I just want you to open up your heart um, to God's love right now as I pray for you. Father, I just thank you for anyone right now that is here online today that wants to open up their life to you, Jesus. I just ask that you would come and you would reveal yourself to them. You would come and fill their lives with love. I thank you that you forgive us of our sins. Lord, I thank you that you want to heal us and give us a brand new start. So we thank you, Father, for that. We thank you for the reality of your presence to be made known to everyone who wants it today in Jesus' name. I want to pray one last prayer really quick. Father, we, uh, we hear the challenge. The challenge is to belong. The challenge is is to serve each other. And the challenge is to, is to serve our, our, our city. And I just ask that you would just give us grace and power to be Jesus people, to love like you, to serve like you, to belong, to be committed, to be faithful, and to do life around a table in Jesus' name. We love you. And everyone at home said, amen. God bless you. And we're praying for a wonderful week. 